0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, David James Gonzalez, and I'm pleased to be speaking with Jessica Ordaz, author of The Shadow of El Centro, Centro, A History of Migrant Incarceration and Solidarity, published by UNC Press in 2021. Jessica is Assistant Professor of Ethnic Studies at university at the University of Colorado at Boulder. She received her doctorate from the University of California, Davis in American history with a minor field in Latin American history. During the 2017 to 2018 academic year, uh, Jessica was the Andrew W. Mellon Sawyer Seminar Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Washington, which focused on comparative racial capitalism. In addition to the book we're discussing today, her scholarship has been published in academic journals and publications like the Journal of American Ethnic History, California History, The Washington Post, and the Radical History Review. Hello, Jessica, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies.
0: Hi, David James. I'm so happy to be here speaking with you today.
1: Great. Well, I'm wondering and hoping we can start by just having you tell uh, our audience a little bit about yourself, just about your background and whatnot.
0: Absolutely. So I'm originally from California. I grew up in the Far East Bay in Contra Costa County, and I am the daughter of Mexican immigrants. They are from Michoacan specifically. They were farm workers throughout most of my childhood, um, so I did get to spend time with them up and down throughout California, um, especially during the summers when I wasn't in school. I like to share that I am the granddaughter of Braceros as well. And so I grew up really listening to a lot of stories from both of my grandfathers um, about labor exploitation and inequality since a very young age. And well, I'm sure we'll return to this later, but I really think that shaped my early academic interests in social justice and social inequality. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I ended up going to college at the age of 18, even though I was a first generation student. And I did attend uh, UC Santa Barbara and really got in back in, involved in a lot of activist spaces there. Um, and so mostly I spent my entire life in California until more recently when I did that postdoc at the University of washington in in Seattle and before relocating to Colorado, where I work now at CU.
1: Great. Um, I want to I'm wondering, I'm sure uh, our audience is, you know too, if you can talk a little bit more about the process of deciding to write this book. I mean, you mentioned um, you know having, family members have participated, right, in the Bracero program. There's obviously that connection. But uh, in other ways, what, what led you to think about and, and then move towards writing about this project?
0: Yes. So writing this book was really, like, a full circle for me. When I was a graduate student at Cal State Fullerton, I was actually more interested in focusing on the history of reproductive violence, especially against Latinas, and thought that's what I was going to write about as a graduate student at UC Davis. But in fact, in in conversations with my advisor, Lorena Orepesa, we really discovered that I was interested in state violence and migration and that there was at the time, this massive gap, right? Like journalists had started to write about immigration detention centers and have historically, but in terms of the historical field, there was very little work at the time. And I think that's, this has changed radically over the last couple of years Um and so that was the first really moment where I realized, like, okay, this is the project that I really want to focus on for my PhD and then turn into a book. However, I say things came full circle for me because it was not just an intellectual interest and a need to you know, fill in a gap. It was that my father, who I write about in the introduction and the acknowledgments of the book, you know to this day 2021 cannot really convey his experiences of being apprehended detained and deported for uh, on multiple occasions and so both having been directly impacted by the consequences and side effects of what the detention and deportation regime does to families, but at the same time, not being able to have a conversation about it with my own family, because there's so much trauma rooted in these experiences, was definitely, I think, on a subconscious level, on the, in the back of my mind. And so I like to say that this project really found me, and, and that was the start of writing about El Centro.
1: Mm. And so does that, I mean, you mentioned the kind of gap or the absence or reluctance of kind of your uh, of, of the discussion of, you know, the parts of immigration detention, right? Um, with your, I'm sorry, did you say it with your grandfather? My was father. His, or your father, sorry. Yeah. Uh, so with your father, right? What about his experiences in the Bracero program? Did he discuss that kind of more freely?
0: Oh, okay. So, yes, just to clarify. So, my, both of my grandfathers who now, you know, Paz Descanse have passed away. Um, one of them semi-recently, a month ago. um They were both braceros. Okay, gotcha. My father was not a braceros. My father was the one that, because of my, you know, his dad's decision to at some point go back to Mexico, meant that my father was um, immigrating in the 1980s to the United States Uh um, without proper authorization and then ended up being detained and deported um, for several times um, before ultimately becoming a permanent resident and now a US citizen.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha.
0: But yes, Uh, sorry, sorry, to answer your question, I think that not only for my family, but in the process of conducting the research on immigration detention centers, even though there is definitely a lot of silence around the Veracero program, because, you know, it's also about labor exploitation, and there are a lot of silences, people were way more willing to talk about anything related to the Bracero program in comparison to detention. Like that just felt a little bit easier for folks because I think the distance with time.
1: Right, right. And did you, I mean, with, with, so with your grandfathers, I mean, were those kind of recollections about the Bracero program in particular, um, were they kind of, a, did you sense a little more nostalgia there? Did they, or did they talk more about, um, kind of more of the hardships or the struggles of braceros because you address some of that in in your book definitely it connects with this book
0: yeah well I know one of the criticisms of oral history even from folks who who work in oral history is that folks sometimes can be a bit nostalgic and mm-hmm. romanticize the past even when they're talking about something like a system of labor exploitation. Both of my grandfathers actually, when it came to the exploitation of Mexicans, were, you know, very blunt about their harsh conditions. Um, My my grandfather on my mother's side in particular I, you know, I made a video memorializing his life because like I mentioned, he passed away recently and I was so lucky to interview him a couple years ago and even in his 80s still had like really specific memories and then like he would go on these rants <laughs> where he would say, you know, well, politicians, every then now and again mention like th- how successful the Bracero program was or like how it can solve some of our contemporary issues and I just want to advocate that that's, you know, awful and not acceptable. So no, I actually don't think they um, romanticized mm, those experiences, uh-huh. but rather had very specific politics because they suffered a lot during those moments in time.
1: Wow. That's fascinating to hear. It. I, you know, because it's, um, you know, as you mentioned, just with, you know, people's memories, right? People's memories are complicated. And I mean, we, I just think back to, you, know, you have me think about my own family history, my wife's family history, and we're, we're trying to figure out, um, you know, that my, whether my wife, whether her grandfather was a bracero or not. Um, And it's just been, it's been hard to um, just through the relationship that, that she and her siblings have with him. You know, it's just like not one of those relationships where you just ask questions to him like that. Uh, And so most of it comes secondhand through um, like her mother and, and stuff like that. And we're just, you know, it's just to make the point, it's been hard to kind of get at certain aspects. They've talked freely about their experiences, you know, migrating, um you know being migrant farm workers you know uh, half of my my um my wife's family uh, her, her her mother's side you know were born in the US the other half were you know in Mexico so you know as me as a historian right i'm always trying to connect the dots and trying to say okay wow like where did they fit in th- these movements but it's just it's been difficult you know to try to get some more you know kind of uh, concrete information um just from them so i appreciate you being willing to share uh, you know a little bit about your your family history and um you know, because it it addresses a problem or a challenge—not so much a problem, but that, that we face as historians, right? In the beginning of the book, you talk about the, the the challenge of you know examining this subject, migrant detention, in a place like El Centro, and so you know, oral history has you know uh, plays a role in this. But uh, tell us more about that process of of deciding, you know, why El Centro, as well as the challenge of kind of researching and finding info about right? The El Centro Immigration Detention Center and the experiences of migrants there.
0: Right. Yes. Wonderful question. So starting with... Why El Centro? So initially as a graduate student, <laughs> overly ambitious, I thought like, oh, you know, there's such little scholarship on the history of migrant incarceration, especially in like detention camps. And so I thought like, I will tell that entire story. And then I, <laughs> that was my starting point. And I kept getting more and more and more narrow. Right. And and I'm glad I did. And in reasons I'll share in a second. But I started thinking like, oh, I'm going to do it all. And then with time, I, you know, migrated more to thinking like, well, what about like close to the border, like several facilities there. And in that process, I was doing a lot of newspaper research and the name of El Centro kept coming up in ways that I wasn't sure, you know, what it meant at the time or how important this facility was, or even its history, like looking it up online, the thing like the research would say, like, oh, this facility has been around like f- since the 70s, was like as far back as it would go. Mm. Um, and, you know, now I, I can say with confidence that it was actually 1945, but nobody knew that because nobody had written the history of this one immigration camp/slash center. All right. And so I started to realize, into like my second year in grad school, like, well, there might be enough here for a dissertation, maybe not a book. We'll see. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> of course, as like a uh, you know first second year graduate student, I had a lot of doubt about like would this manifest into anything, and thankfully it did. Um, but that's you know it was a process of. of really following the archival trail and coming across countless dead ends. So I knew that this facility existed at least since the 70s, which already to me meant it's a lot older than some of our contemporary facilities that have opened after this post-1980s moment or even more recently. And so I decided, okay, at least for now, during the dissertation, I am going to write like a very focused micro history on this one camp, because it's going to allow me to really interrogate the world of migrant incarceration in a way that I won't be able to if I'm doing this like comparative massive project on like all detention facilities, that also is important. But the comparisons are going to look different than say, thinking about this one place throughout half a century, basically. And so aside from newspapers, once I finally got to the research stage, I did go to several archives that ended up being dead ends, I ended up going to El Centro and quickly realized that that wasn't the best place to do research, because a lot of the documents I needed are are federal. Hmm. And so the local uh, city did not have access to them. But also I write about like that eerie experience of, you know, perhaps it didn't make sense to look there in the first place, but it's a facility that at that point then I realized like had been open since 1945. So for decade upon decades upon decades had existed in this community in a very small city. In fact, in Centro, I'm not sure if you've been there, but very small. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, folks didn't really want to talk to me. The like local archives I visited had nothing like they had like, dozens and dozens of photos of like every street corner (laughs) and every grocery store and you know like the fire department and like different landmarks but no reference like not a single one not a single photo of the detention center that was around for so long and so that not only was the first time I started to think about this project as like eerie and, and a haunting but also made me want to keep going (laughs) i could be a bit stubborn and so you know i came to this point where i realized i have no sources i must then (laughs) you know find them (laughs) and so places that ended up being important were in dc in mexico city in san diego thinking about not only government correspondence about immigration detention but activists that have protested detention sites in the past and so for example i mentioned san diego the american Front service committee archive has a phenomenal document you know box of boxes upon boxes uh, documenting a lot of abuses that happen in facilities and and i did come across like limitations in terms of time so in um dc most of the sources end in the 1950s but then i had to like fill filling gaps by like Looking at archives that focus on the 70s and the 80s to try to tell a story about change over time and continuity and, and how um, the El Centro facility changes from 1945 to 2014, or it doesn't change. And so I was able to piece together. Um, the dissertation that then I transformed into the book. But yes, there were so many moments where I kept hitting dead ends and people didn't want to speak with me. And then in terms of the oral history component, also overly ambitious at the very beginning, I imagined that I was going to interview a ton of folks who had been detained at El Centro um, throughout the decades. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I, Unfortunately, I ended up with one. <laughs> so more more than there was before, <laughs> but not very many. A lot of the people I ended up interviewing ended up being immigration lawyers and activists and some locals from El Centro who were willing willing to speak with me at some point. Um, but but it ended up being very archival based or I I ended up turning to like photography as a form of analyzing some of the changes in el centro um but also really then writing about those absences and the lack of information in, and then that's how I get to the hauntings and and the ghosts that I write about um so yes, not surprisingly, uh, the government did not give me access to these sources. I did file several FOIA requests at the very beginning, only to be told like, you know, no, these are still working files or they have private information that we choose not to release to you. But the interesting thing is we know they exist, right? So I might have not gotten access to most of those files for this particular book, but um, I, I wrote a tweet the other day about hmm. archives and the lack of access for immigration historians in particular, because when I first did the first FOIA request, I had... Um, an archivist at NARA tell me, you know, like, well, what kinds of documents are you looking for? And I said, I'm particularly interested in, like, sexual uh, violence in detention facilities at El Centro. And, And the archivist basically laughed and said, like, we have so much material on this one topic that that is the reason you can't have access to it is we haven't done the labor of compiling and categorizing these sources to then make it available to you, aside from the fact that a lot of them are, are classified or working documents. And so that also was enough to realize like, okay, I might not have those documents, but wow. <laughs> like just yeah. knowing that that exists, wow. you know, it's, Slowly. it's, is frustrating because we're talking about violence. Um, and so it was also affirming to realize, though, that like this book should be written regardless of, of how much material I was able to obtain.
1: Wow, what a challenge. Oh my gosh. Um, I, and I appreciate you explaining that because I mean, I get a sense of it. You get a sense of it reading through the introduction, but <laughs> <man>. <laughs> I'm thinking, holy smokes, what a challenge to address. And I, you also have me thinking about the you know, the title and the way, you know, the metaphor of this, the shadow, you know, um, you know, of El Centro kind of works. Um, you know, I, I was just flipping through the pages of the book as you're talking and looking at the pictures. And, uh, and I did that because I was trying to remember like, what does this building look like? Right. Yeah. What does this place look like? And most of the pictures are from the inside and it seems to be that they were accessed through like journalists, as you mentioned before. Um, there's a couple exterior shots, but one is of, like, um, you know, exercise equipment, right, De- detainees that are, you know, exercising. And, 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 I mean, it's striking how much it looks like a prison, for Pete's sakes, right, which completely contradicts, again, the narrative, uh, at least that the government provides, right? And we'll get to that, of what these spaces are, and trying to make the distinction that they're not prisons, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, – I can only imagine – So the, uh, I can only imagine you're trying to find maybe like a a photo of the whole thing, um, you know, outside exterior view. Because again, it's just I'm trying to imagine what did the what did it look like from the outside, and it, it's incredibly hard to piece that together.
0: Right, absolutely. Wow.
1: Um, so I'm thinking again uh, about the the title, um, the shadow of El Centro, and I think particularly for me it has resonance because. Uh, I actually do know of El Centro, and I've been there a few times. Um, my mother grew up very nearby El Centro. She grew up in a town called Heber, uh, so right there in that valley. Um, and she, see, she would have moved away in, I want to say, like 60 or 61. She moved away shortly after her dad died. Um, but anyways, it, it's never something, and I've been there a couple times, both to kind of look over, uh, you know, some of, like, her old stopping grounds and, I was kind of a nerd, a band nerd in high school. So <laughs> there was a big parade that was kind of a, out there and in, in, in the valley, like Brawley, uh, kind of near that. A big parade, and so we've been there several times. And I'm just again, uh, what struck me when I when I saw your book was not only that personal con- connection with my mom's history, but just the there, there's no idea. I had no idea that there's an immigration detention center out there. Um, and you're speaking right to someone like yourself, uh, you know, American historian, Chicago historian, immigration historian. Um, I did know about the processing center or at least, uh, um, and, and we can get into a in little bit because I have a personal connection. I actually know Gretchen Lowy who you spoke with. Oh, okay, with. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I've been, I've been there and her, her place is amazing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and just, uh, that, uh, can you talk about more about why you chose to use particularly, you know, describe the the title in this way and to use the word shadow of it and what ways is that metaphor working for you? Yes. And the book.
0: Yes. So, I think like a lot of authors, uh, the title came at the end, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it, it had very many different variations throughout time. Um, and this is one that my editor and I came up with at the very end. Once I realized that a big through line was actually this idea of hauntings and the shadowy nature of detention, And so I think it works for this particular immigration camp, as well as the detention and deportation regime more broadly, in the sense that, like we just talked about, getting access to sources is really hard, but also intentional, right? We're not, Mm -hmm. as the public, intended to have access because they reveal the very, very violent brutalities that take place inside, as well as their function, which I argue in the book is to be violent and brutal. Um, And in addition to that, on a more local level, the Imperial Valley, but El Centro in particular, is very isolated from other major cities today, right? So San Diego, even though it's only two hours, I, I went on on different occasions, felt further than those two hours depending (laughs) on the climate on one occasion I rented you know like the most compact vehicle possible (laughs) to be (laughs) able to commute from San Diego to El Centro and it was very windy and I felt like I was just gonna fly away off the mountain um and you know there are occasions when it's very rainy or very snowy in that Mm -hmm. pass and so Even though El Centro is only two hours from San Diego, it feels like a very different place. Um, And it's far from LA as well. And so not only is that difficult for people going to El Centro to do research potentially, but for the migrants who are incarcerated there, right? A lot of them have families who might be commuting from other states and or locally from Los Angeles or San Diego, and it just becomes that much difficult to access them. There's so many levels of of this invisibility. They're already in what I do argue is very much like a prison, even though it's not by its name or definition, um, and so there are those obstacles, but also the geography, the climate, the environment does not help. I did speak with an immigration lawyer who said, you know, there's so many folks in San Diego who, when this facility was active, wanted to work as pro bono lawyers, but it was really hard to meet with their clients because of of the, the getting from point A to point B just was much more challenging than say, driving from San Diego to LA or San Diego to Orange County, et cetera. Um, And so the shadowy part in particular comes from the fact that this camp was in operation a lot earlier than a lot of our contemporary ones. So again, I said 1945, which means that so much of what happened throughout the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s shaped what we think of today, Mm -hmm. falsely what we think of today as the rise of immigration detention, which a lot of scholars and journalists have sort of said that that um, date is the 1980s.
1: Right. Right.
0: And so it shows that there's a longer legacy. And of course, there's an even longer legacy with Alice Island and Angel Island. But if we're thinking about um, at least the detention of, of Mexican migrants along the U.S. Mexico border, then El Centro is very, the El Centro immigration camp is very much one of the earliest and it's one of the longest ones. And so it, it is, I argue, a model for a lot of what's to come um, and what we see today. And so not only did it shape you know, everything from its model of labor against the detained migrants to the operations of violence, to the way that um, detained folks are racialized and um, exploited. And and that's seen now throughout, right, regardless of what state we're talking about in detention centers. And so it, it's shadowy in the sense that it's spread, unfortunately.
1: Mm-hmm. It, tell us, why did they, as best as you can, right? Why did they pick El Centro? I mean, you, you you describe how this place is in the middle of nowhere. And so part of it kind of thinks, oh, like, well, man, that's you know, intentional to kind of hide something. But was that really the case? I mean, you tell us about the origins and and, and the evolution of this particular um, detention center?
0: Yeah, at least from what I found in correspondence, there were a few reasons. One was uh, its proximity to the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, Secondly was cheap land. So they were able to purchase the land in which the facility or camp at the time sat for, you know, I don't have the exact number on me, but it was very inexpensive. Mm -hmm. Um, In addition to that is um, it's an important place of, of migration throughout the 20th century and including in the 1940s. And so for those three reasons, El el Centro becomes important. But, you know, I'm arguing that it is a model, but it's also not the only one. So then Mm -hmm. later on in the 50s, Texas has a couple that become equally important. And so it's a model. um, But I'm not arguing it's the only one or that it's exceptional. And so at least at the time, I think that it made sense. Um, the correspondence is basically just says like it's very very close to the border. Uh, I don't. One thing I don't think they really thought through, and I do write about this a little bit, is uh, how hot it is in the <laughs> Imperial Valley. <laughs> and so of course they did not care that like the the migrant men would be in El Centro sort of suffering from the heat, but they they um, often would request. By they I mean local border patrol inspectors would request the federal government to like transfer them out to different um, jobs. They basically were like, we don't want to work here in the summer. (laughs) And so I think that's one of the things that was not thought through very well.
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm. what about the connection to the bracero program because uh, as we, m- we just referenced a little earlier like there's this uh the re- essentially the reception center for braceros is also in el centro and these places you had the reception center and this detention center or facility just what four miles apart from each yeah, other
0: yeah yeah i mean my
1: gosh like what
0: yeah so it to me it's like <laughs> the epitome of the revolving door
1: right
0: yeah. like the epitome um I didn't know that at the very beginning when I started doing research that the that they were four miles apart from each other. It wasn't until a bit later on when people kept wanting to talk about the Bracero program as opposed to the detention mm-hmm. facility in El Centro, including um, Gretchen, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yes, actually, and I could do a better job of talking about this when I talk about the book, because I feel like it gets buried since the Bracero chapter is, is sort of confined to chapter two. Um, mm-hmm. But I really believe that one of the reasons that the federal government felt that they needed a detention camp in the first place in 1945 was because of the increased in migration that spurred, from the Bracero program, right? So right, we know, right. of course, that the Bracero program um, included contracted laborers, but that at the same time, you had a rise in unauthorized migration of folks who either didn't get a contract, but still wanted to come, and, or just it, provide, it gave the idea, right? And this was true for my own grandfather, like the idea that like, oh, well, there's a lot of jobs, clearly, right? They're like trying to recruit us. So regardless of um, whether I have a contract or not, I'm going to migrate north and work um, whatever scenario that looks like. And so you have a rise of migration, especially along the U.S.-Mexico border around the Imperial Valley. And so the federal government sees a need to hold unauthorized uh, migrants, ironically, at the very same time that they are transporting Mexican nationals to work as braceros. And this is true for my grandfather. A lot of the braceros in the Imperial Valley end up skipping out at some point because the bracero program is re- very repressive. And to a degree, you you have more flexibility and freedom being unauthorized because you can, you know, get up and leave if you're not happy, which my, I, you know, I grew up hearing stories of this from my grandfather. Mm-hmm. And um, and so a lot of them, even though they came as braceros, would then become unauthorized and thus lose their contract and then be deported from the same place in El Centro. And so... Yes, it is is very ironic, but I think speaks to the management of labor. Um, but also something I write about in that chapter is like the racialization specifically of of Mexican men, whether you come as an unauthorized worker or a contracted worker, and how the treatment and the conditions in which they lived are actually very similar, I think mm-hmm. speaks a lot to, um, you know, what May Nye and both, both May Nye and Kelly Light Hernandez have written about the idea that um, the Mexican becomes this iconic illegal regardless of their actual status.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you definitely addressed that, right? The the, the I think the concept you talk about, the spectral door, right? The fluidity of legality yeah. uh, and migrant status and how, it you know, as with your, your grandfather and, and so many others, you know, they could at one point, right, they can be, have a, a legal type of status and, and another, right, uh, you know, not have that anymore. And yet, the similarities of the treatment is what's so striking, right? right. That the status itself is supposed to provide protection. And yet, it actually doesn't do that. Right. And it actually leads to additional forms of exploitation. Right. Um, which is, you know, it, it never strikes me, no matter how much I read about this. I mean, you mentioned some great scholars already, you know, May Nye and Kelly Light Hernandez, and there's been some phenomenal work right on the Bracero program recently. I mean, Lodi Flores and so I many, just so many others, but it's just like, it, it, it just always strikes me just to hear this, right. To read it, to hear it, to realize, I mean, how central exploity, the exploitation of labor is uh, to this story, uh, right. right? And this history, um, which I think is incredible how you, you you really do a great job of trying to get to the experiences of migrants. And I appreciate it so much more just hearing how hard it was for you to access documents. And can you talk a little bit more of, uh, I think we can get a sense of the type of exploitive nature that, that uh, both the Bracetto program and, and detention is, and um, but you talk about, so you do a great job, I think, of trying to, as much as you can, to provide agency, right? And, and give us a sense of the voice and the, the true experiences of migrants. Um, so tell us, well, how did they, what did they do, right? How did they, how are they not just kind of, you know, passive type of victims in this whole story of people kind of being corralled and moved around as labor? I mean, that's part of the history of it, but that's certainly not all of it, right? And, and not how they saw themselves, yeah. So what did they do, and uh, you know, in this process?
0: Yeah, so this was really important to me. Um, I've already talked quite a bit about my grandfather. I don't mind saying a bit a bit more, but um, you know, I, I he he was a very strong individual. Very stubborn. And so even though I heard a lot of stories growing up of labor exploitation, he would often say things like, you know, but I showed them or I refused to do this or that. He has this really great example in the interview I did with him where he talks about how Braceros um, would go through this very exploitative process before they were um transported to their, their job assignments, basically in the processing center, where not only would they be sprayed with TB and their clothes would be taken, um, away and things like that, but he talks about this moment where the nurse is drawing his blood and that there's just a line of men, right. Potential racerals and they're all, um, getting their their blood drawn, but they're doing it so violently and inhumanely where they're just in a line and the nurses are just like, you know, pricking them very quickly as opposed to like more gently or having it be more of an individual experience and they are very much corralled And, and, and he's laughing during the interview and he's saying like I told her like what do you think like who are you a vampire like why do you want my blood right and it's this moment where like he's talking about these like really sad stories but he's doing it in a way where like to me as his granddaughter it's like very obvious that like the this is a very like humane human Response to like say like you know you're doing this to me but of course I'm a person I have agency and I can respond in whichever way I want to and I'm gonna basically give you shit for it
1: (laughs) while while you do it right and
0: so that was very much on my mind while I was doing the research and writing this book that of course these are not passive migrants as much as the state has inflicted this awful amount of violence throughout the decades. And so thankfully, I found the sources to write about it. And at the beginning, um, in the 1940s, I found that at the very moment, like in the same month that the El Centro immigration camp was open, you had these this incarcerated population basically say like, you know, you, you want to hold us here for X amount of time. But on top of that, you're forcing us to work. You're mm-hmm. forcing us to continue to construct our very prison. You're taking us out of our prison and you're making us work in your backyard, in your farm. So, you know, for your own profit. And the only thing we're getting is, you know, maybe an extra ration of food, which is crap
1: anyways, right? It's crap food. Right, right. <laughs> right.
0: exactly. Um, but it's, it's not a wage, right? Like, it's not yeah. a wage. Um, and, and sometimes instead of food, it would be like, well, we're not deporting you. So again, right. not a wage. <laughs> and so I've really written about this example of coerced and in some some cases forced labor. Um, and at the same time, you have the this incarcerated population run away, escape, flee, do literally everything they can to leave. And I just think that's so important, not only because it's an example of resistance, but it's also a way of them protesting, like, no, you're not going to like not only are you not going to police my mobility, but you're not going to force me to participate in the system of exploit, exploitable labor, where you are the only benefit person who benefits. Um, and so, like I said, from the very beginning, from, like, the first week in which the, like, camp is open in 1945, I found a lot of correspondence between the INS where they're, like, very stressed and, like, oh, my God, like, they're, you know, they're escaping, we, we, we need more money, we need help, we don't know how to, like, make them stay. And
1: so- <laughs> you know, that effort just means- I'm totally laughing along with you here because it just, seems it's, it's, like, so absurd that, right, they're shocked that their detainees are trying to get away from being locked up and exploitive. I mean, it's the most human of things. I always try to teach right. my students, right? That, that like, people resist inhumanity, right? Whenever we start talking yeah. about oppression, slaves, you know, no one had to teach slaves that it was bad right Right. nobody had to teach oppressed people that (laughs) what was happening (sighs) to them was wrong and i love this i love i love what you're saying so keep going
0: yes Um, yes exactly and and so that's one of the things i point out in this chapter is that like instead of critically grappling with like well why are they trying to leave what the INS ultimately decides is well, we just need to make it harder for them to escape. And so they increase surveillance at the facility, and this is as early as 1945, so the same year. Um, they increase surveillance, they add more lighting, they add more guards. For the first time, they introduce the use of rifles with blanks so that you know, they can shoot and um, potentially scare someone who's trying to escape, but also to communicate with the other guards. And then um, equally repressively, they lock the men in at night so that they physically can't leave. But this happens throughout like several years, and probably honestly, the entire time I say the few years, because the sources I found in Washington, D.C. on this topic were only for those years. And so that itself is very telling. Right. Like had mm-hmm. I had sources and reports from other years, this might possibly be something that just was always that something they had to deal with, the, the guards had to deal with. Um, we don't know that. I don't know that I didn't have access to some of the latter years, but at least for several years in the 1940s, there, there were so many different ways in which the incarcerated migrants would try to escape. And so in addition to trying to leave during the day when they were not locked in their um, barracks, they would leave when they were out on quote unquote work parties, right? Which is what the INS called them when they would have them, you know, go either in one example, for instance, that I write about, um, two of the men are taken really, really close to the border, which is like, how did they not see this coming? Okay. So they're, <laughs> they're exactly. right really close to the border. <laughs> um, they are, collecting gravel to be used in resurfacing the walkways in the camp and the, the two, well, there's, there's two, um, detained men and one of them starts like walking towards the bushes and the guards assume like oh well he's you know needs to go um, relieve himself and instead of stopping at the bush he like makes a run for it and is able to escape and so like stories like this actually are very common in the archive which I thought was fascinating because these men are doing everything they can to say we don't want to be here this yeah. is not we're not like volunteers we are not like agreeing to this, which really challenges the definitions of what INS officers are saying they're doing. They really argue, um, at least in the correspondence that I found, that they're doing a service to these unauthorized Mexican men by allowing them the privilege to work throughout the Imperial Valley and gain skills. But that's just obviously I, I didn't think that was the case to begin with, but like the <laughs> fact that they're constantly escaping and leaving to me is evidence for more that, you know, they are not willing participants. And so, yes, the chapter really writes about these escapes as a form of survival, as a form of resistance, as a way of challenging their labor exploitation, but also to highlight that, um, they're, they're fugitives from the start, right? These are unauthorized workers who are already, quote unquote, breaking the law. And so they are, um, they are, you know, fugitives on, on multiple, multiple ways of looking at it, perhaps. And um So, yeah, this continues. This continues. And they continue to work in solidarity by doing it in groups, by waiting for it to rain so that the dirt gets soft and they can crawl under the fence and etc., And so this is what resistance looked like in the 1940s, but then later I write about um, perhaps more obvious forms of resistance by looking at the hunger strike, by looking Mm -hmm. at protests in the 80s and and 90s, and by also really writing about testimony as resistance, because later on towards the end of the book, there's a chapter that's, you know, chapter is is about violence in, in a very dark way in the sense that we're talking about the physical violence of a lot of these men and of children in this chapter. And um, they are still protesting. And in some cases, Perhaps it's more coded, but I still see it as a form of resistance in the sense that the men are are working with the American Friends Service Committee, which is where I found their stories archived, and they're telling their stories even though they know that this is very dangerous to their well-being. In a lot of cases, they will be put in solitary confinement. They will be beaten. They might not win their case if they're filing for asylum. They may be deported. That often happens. But are yet are being very vulnerable and are sharing their experiences, which unfortunately is the same, and it continues from the 40s to the present, or in this case, until 2014, when the facility closes. Um, but yes, I definitely tried to highlight the ways in which this population, they were not passive victims, but in fact, more than agents, you know, in a lot of ways, especially when I look at the 1980s, and I talk about transnational migrant politics, these are activists from Latin America who come right. with like their own politics and ideologies so that when they come and they're incarcerated in El Centro this is not the first time they've ever thought about inequality they've mm-hmm. like a lot of them have spent decades working on different struggles against the US empire in particular in Central America and then you know in speaking to one another they're all facing the same repression while incarcerated and so they rely on each other to protest um, as much as they can.
1: Yeah, I uh, I appreciate how much you you get at the nuance. You know that goes on within um, you know between migrants within here. I mean, you you mention uh, in the book how you know you have some migrants that are right uh actively trying to a form of resistance one form of resistance is is trying to escape as you mentioned and and so there are even you know detained migrants that that stay detained that help and assist um you know some migrants uh escape and then there are others that also uh, you know inform the authorities yeah. right uh just yeah. getting at you know the the different kinds of responses and it doesn't mean i would say necessarily right that those that were maybe in you know, a reported Right, uh, migrants that were missing. It's not as if they, of course, uh, accepted their confinement or accepted their conditions, right? But it, it does, I think it humanizes, uh, I think, a the vari- the variety of experiences and responses, right? That, that just makes sense. I mean, people are people, right? right and right. no two people are going to experience something the same way. No two people are going to respond the same way. And uh, so some forms of resistance, as you point out, are, are those that we've discussed uh, as well. You also mentioned the hunger strike, um, and that, which makes me think of, can you tell us about a bit more about what are some of the, I guess, maybe more the, the differences and distinctions that you see operating like the 80s, uh, the latter part of this history, um, both of what are the experience, what are migrants experiencing that are, that's different, and what are the shifts and changes in the 80s and, and later period? Um, and also, how does that connect to the, those types of resistance? Because initially, I think, and as you start talking in, in the book about the migrants, you know, escaping and, and resisting, it's it's like a form of migrant politics that's confined mostly to that space and those involved. But then later, it becomes bigger, and you use the term transnational migrant politics. So, how is that both connected to the shift in, you know, geopolitics of migration, the shifts and changes of incarceration itself? Because obviously, it's Uh, you know, this practice is evolving and changing the whole time,
0: right? Yes. Yes. So the early part of the book really focuses on unauthorized Mexican men. And I say that because that actually was the purpose of the camp by definition in 1945, um, The INS writes about it as a place to hold unauthorized Mexican migrant men and men in particular. So I should note uh, the facility, the camp never, ever held women. So that's the only reason that they don't show up as the main um, characters of the book or main subjects of the book. And so this changes, I want to say at the end of the 1970s, but definitely by the time I start writing about the 1980s, because of the demographics of migrants. So it's by by the late 1970s, there's a huge shift in migration politics because of war in Central America, because of dictatorships, because of... Um, Counter revolution. And so, for all of those reasons, reasons that the US absolutely is involved in, like I mentioned with um, empire building. Uh, you have a rise of Central American migrants coming in greater numbers than you had before the 1970s. And so there's a shift in the types of folks that are being held at El Centro. So by the end of the 1970s, it's no longer a space confined to unauthorized Mexican migrant men, but you have a much more diverse demographic. It's still very highly like Latin American Um So you still have quite a bit of of folks from Mexico and then from Central America and South America, and you start to see an increase in folks from other parts of the world. So even in the hunger strike in 1985, I write about how some of the like final hunger strikers, right? So like the last seven, a lot of them were from El Salvador and some from Mexico, but you also had like one person was from China, for example. Um, And and that that really changed the politics of solidarity because folks are not necessarily coming from one place, but it also means um, that there there are growing tensions inside the facility. I talk about a scenario in the 1980s where a lot of the Salvadorian migrants were... um, you know, really talking about a potential hunger strike and that some of the Mexican migrants were in solidarity with them, but then there was um, a detainee from Asia who was very rude to them and like was like in charge of the laundry in the facility. And so that's getting at your question about like tensions and nuances. So of course not everybody was on the same page or agreed. Um, but yes, the facility looks different. It is very repressive in the sense that the INS in the 1980s now has access to more technologies of repression, um, And this is true for the entire carceral state and policing in general. Um, And so in terms of activism, yes, it's not just escaping. One escaping would be a lot harder at this point because in 45, you know, you had this like makeshift fence and they talk a lot about how the wire mesh is not strong enough and therefore people can escape. And by 1985, Even though there might have still been some escapes, again, that I wasn't able to get documents for, they definitely are not as common because just the apparatus is a lot more repressive, they have more access to funding, so that's a big thing. The INS now has way more money than it did in 1945, which means they have the technologies and tools to be repressive. I also found in the sources that they just would smash dis- dissent, any type of dissent, very, very, very quickly. So at the very like start of you know a potential protest, they might separate um, migrants either by putting some of them in solitary confinement or by literally transferring them to a different facility. And so the detention operations became more knowledgeable about how to smash dissent very quickly. Whereas in the 40s, it was very much an experiment. Like a lot, to be honest, a lot of the local officials had no idea what they were doing and they would write about it in their correspondence, right? As they're like writing to the federal government, like, um, (laughs) you know, how do we do this? Or how do we enforce that? Whereas in the 80s, they've already learned a lot Um, and they start creating manuals or uh, detention centers specifically, where they say things like, "You really need like to to guards." They tell them, "You really need to be attentive to the detainee population and make sure that they're not, you know, talking to each other too closely because they might be conspiring, or um, they just are very aware." of any potential what they would classify a disturbance. And they see protesting as a huge threat. Um, And one of the reasons they see it as a threat is because news of a hunger strike could be leaked, could be released to the public. And by the 1980s, the INS is very concerned with their public image and how they even have in the handbook, right? Like these quotes where they say, taxpayers because we pay for detention centers like taxpayers are not going to be on board with these facilities if we are not careful with how our image is presented and this is common since the 1980s and continues to today
1: certainly i'm i'm running. we're running. i'm realizing we're running out of time here uh, and i appreciate your time so much i want to know and i guess uh, Maybe we can end with this. What is it that you hope readers uh, and even listeners, uh, you know, take from, you know, this history and this story? I mean, particularly recognizing that it's just so it's so prescient, right? It's something that we're 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 obviously still dealing with. It's it's the center of the news, right? Yeah. Universe. I mean, almost nonstop. Uh, uh, you know. Yes. Well, I guess we'll just pause with that. Yeah. What would you like? our listeners and, and readers of your book to take take from this?
0: Yeah, so I think one of my questions and contributions that I would say is the most important takeaway from the entire book is to really interrogate the function of detention. I think a lot of people have started to talk about the rise, and I think that matters, of course, and is important. But I think in really grappling with why do we have immigration detention camps? Why do we have immigration detention facilities, right? We can use different names here. People have Mm -hmm. called them concentration camps. Like why do they exist to begin with, I think is such an important question. And one of the answers I provide is that they are intended to be punitive, to be violent, to be instructive. And therefore, if that is the case, Personally, I advocate for their abolition as opposed to their reform because at least in this case, in El Centro, from 1945 until 2014, I did not find a single instance where INS or ICE now officials attempted to be more caring. That's not, that's not the function of what it's intended to be. And therefore, I don't think it ever could be. And so I think that gets us then into an important conversation about abolition. And ultimately, I think that's something that readers and listeners at least are willing to grapple with, since they are detention centers so prevalent, like you said, in our contemporary moment.
1: Yeah, it's just, it's so striking to me. I appreciate that. I agree with you 100% because it's, you know, as we read about not just the history, but even the present. I mean, these facilities, the government is usually very specific to say that they're not prisons, right? um, And uh, that people that are in them are being held for various reasons, particularly nowadays. I mean, a lot of them are are asylum seekers, even back in, in the history you cover, you have asylum seekers, uh, you know, in this period. And so these are people that have, uh, a lot of them have not convicted, have not committed a crime or have not been convicted of a crime, et cetera. And yet they're incarcerated and they're treated as if they're, you know, they would be in many other prison-like, uh, space in the united states but they even have less rights right right i mean that that's like the striking thing right when you think of like of course the united states and it's uh you know so-called foundational myths and and documents of it but i mean you're thinking of like the rights of due process like this is central to exactly you know this government and its history and you know uh, all this stuff and here you have um not a small portion you have the history you covered eight decades of this facility right being in operation as just one example as you mentioned right of this long history of, of migrant detention so um, it's striking it's incredibly provocative and and thought-provoking and of course um, there's so many lessons for us to take from it for, for our day so thank you so much for uh, you know of course first of all writing the book uh, and your your time you invested into uh, you know, trying to bring these stories and these voices uh, to life, because uh, it's—I can just—I uh, can only imagine empathize how difficult it was in, as a project, and, and uh, of course, with the constraints of having it being an academic project too. I mean, the scrutiny of of our scholarship, uh, the scrutiny and the, the, the standard that you have to uphold in um, you know, in trying to tell uh, the story and both get as much provide as much as the migrants' perspective and agency. Uh, is uh, is incredible. So wonderful job, and thank you again for your time, Jessica.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, really appreciated all of your 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 insights and your questions.